Hi listeners, it's Lucy. Please don't scroll ahead. This is a very quick message, I promise, to ask a very easy favour. At the end of each episode, as the credits roll, you'll hear a request from us to rate and review the show. Now, for those of you that are awesome podcast listeners rather than podcast makers, you might actually have no idea what a huge difference those things make. A significant factor in the visibility of a podcast on almost all listening platforms is down to the number and quality of ratings and subscriptions. So, if you are one of our dedicated listeners, hi, I know some of you as far away as Australia, so thanks. If you're currently not driving your car or changing a baby's nappy, can you please just look down at your phone right now as I'm talking and hit subscribe and five-star rating? Both of them are on the homepage of the show and they are both only a one-click job. But oh my God, what a lot of joy and gratitude I would feel at those one clicks. It makes such a difference to the show's potential to keep going. Now, enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Hi, Lucy Eaton here, host of Hear Me Out. We've had lots of requests from our amazing listeners asking how they can support the show. So before we invite today's special guest on, I wanted to let you know that we are officially now on Patreon. This means that you can invest in the channel monthly, and in return you get all kinds of perks from bonus footage to having your own questions put to our starry guests. Just head to our page on patreon.com slash podhearmeout. We've popped the link in the show notes below, and we would love to have you join the family. You're about to hear a brief conversation with an incredible actor. Part autobiographical journey, part literary analysis and part late night chat in the theatre bar, this is Hear Me Out and I'm your host, Lucy Eaton. Please welcome to the stage, Kwame Kweyamaa. Love it. All good. Glad to hear it. So, for the listener, Kwame's favourite speech is actually a speech that we don't have the permission to read today. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So we had a last minute manic sort of, oh gosh, is there something else that we could look at as well? Because I definitely don't want to abandon your favourite speech. We have to discuss However, However, what I would say Mm. is that every, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Because then I started to kind of dig and go, "Uh, what else, where else could I look? And then I found a speech that I had read, oh, maybe 20 years ago, a play that I'd read. And I went, oh my God, I remember that speech. And so I'm really, I'm really overjoyed that actually it gave me the opportunity to dive back in. Oh, I'm so pleased. I was just, I was honestly, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show anyway, but I was so excited to see what you would pick just because (laughs) I just think because of all the numerous areas of this industry that you, Mm. you've I mean, I was about to say dipped your toe into it. It's more than dipped your toe. You're like properly immersed (laughs) in. I just thought, I bet he's going to come out with something really great that I was hoping it would be something I didn't know because I really wanted to sort of expand my own knowledge of theatre and plays in these fabulous chats I'm having. And you haven't disappointed. I'm overjoyed. I I would say that all I did was choose it. I did not write it. So the the praise goes to you for setting up this this wonderful conversation and to the writer. I mean, it would have been really obnoxious, wouldn't it, if you were like, my favourite speech is actually from a play by Kwame Kriyama. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Here's one of mine. (laughs) So shall we begin with the one that came to you most instinctively Mm. do you want to tell us what that was or what play it was from yeah well it was from august wilson's play joe turner's come and gone and it was um a speech 
by by one of the the main characters. A character actually played by Delroy Lindo, mm. actually in a in a production um, that was that was done, I think, at the Young Vic. Well, no, I don't think I know it was done at the Young Vic before I got there. And in fact, I I recommended Delroy Lindo for the role. Did you to, to David Lamb at the time? <laughs> so uh, yeah, it, it it's it's from Joe Turner's Come and Gone and. And um, this play is number two in the Pittsburgh cycle, mm. a kind of century of plays that August Wilson, a 10-play cycle of, of one in every decade of the 20th century. And, uh, and this is the play, I think, that made me know in my soul that I wanted to be a playwright and that I wanted to be in theatre. Oh, amazing. Okay. Just a quick question, because you've brought it up. The Pittsburgh cycle, right? So it's these yeah. 10 plays. Are we aware of whether, did August Wilson set out to do 10 plays? Or was it something that over time it became, it evolved into clearly a collection that sat together? My understanding is by the time he got to the end of play two, Joe Turner's, he went, all right, I'm going to do, I'm going to go for all 10. Yeah, I've got 10 in me. Yeah, I got, I got 10. And I was going to say weirdly or prophetically or... I mean, who knows? But but he died after he completed the tenth play. I mean, I, I think he was about to, or in the middle of writing a new play on a different subject, and oh. and he passed away, two thousand and five. So for people who don't know him that well, I feel like he's mm. recently become better known because we've got Ma Rainey's Black Bottom with all kinds of Oscar nominations or whatever, and Fences was a huge hit five or six years ago. So that's absolutely. All august wilson yes yeah yeah and i feel like he's slightly better known in america because he's been so such a boundary breaking certainly african-american playwright yeah i mean he's o'neill you know he's right. I, I, I no other american playwright actually achieved what he set out to do and and did it and so he definitely is um, i mean he has a broadway theater named after him mm. um his plays are done continually and most importantly a bit like George Bernard Shaw and a bit like Shakespeare, actually. And there are players who have made their entire career of being in August Wilson plays and directors who've had their entire career directing his plays. So prolific was 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 he and and so often was his plays produced yeah. that, you know, there are kind of Wilsonian actors and, and and there is a Wilsonian style. Yeah, I was going to say, so what makes something an August Wilson? I think for me, and certainly for my generation of artists, there were two things. One is that he was an organic intellectual and in that he he spoke, he spoke about art and he spoke about his art through the lens of being an African-American. Mm -hmm. And he spoke about it without fear. And yet still succeeded and yet still hit Broadway and yet still was produced and, and would win, you know, every award going. And that that was revolutionary. Mm. So that, that's that's the political stance that I that I think or the political ground he stood on. Mm. But if we get down into the plays, mm. the thing that makes a Wilsonian play is that beautiful merge, that marriage between poetry and politics of history and of soul. And there is a, a, a kind of giddy, heady mix of remembrance 
and a projection to the future as as a kind of almost these plays are an exercise in filling you up and and reclaiming lost ground cultural lost ground that's such a beautiful way you described it and it's interesting because when you started i was almost keen to ask you know is there someone comparable right is there another playwright you'd say oh this it's sort of in the those kind of voice but i wonder whether i know he was so important in like you said in the black theater movement is part of all the brilliance he brings part of the sort of painful legacy that he's trying to as in could that style be achieved by a white playwright or something like that or do you think he's so seeped in the stories he was really keen to tell that weren't being told i i, I mean i i find that question slightly uh difficult to answer mm. um only and it's a brilliant question um only because um because actually, I, I have two responses. Number one, there's a playwright who's white called Naomi Wallace. Mm. And Naomi writes um, with great poetry and great political acumen mm. and, 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 and a sense and a need through often the lens of gender to, uh, to deconstruct, to reconstruct. So the, the, the kind of type, the poetic dramatist is a type that August fits in and not exclusively either, right. you know, that, that there are others. But there is something about his, there is something about the mixture of the cultural amnesia that he was trying to address, mm. along with a sense of challenging the Aristotelian three-act structure <laughs> and, and finding his own energy and voice. He often said that unless you'd been to the black church, you were not in a position to critique his plays. And I found that to be true. Um, or I mean, probably nothing is exclusive, but, but I found that to be very instructive because the structure of the plays w w was set out of, uh, out of that tradition. I often, sometimes I would remember, I'd read some reviews, even though he was celebrated, I'd be like, you just didn't get it. <laughs> and, and they didn't get it. And I don't want to just put it down to, to black or white because mm. there are some black critics or black people who certainly may not have been born in that tradition or understand that tradition or might critique from a different angle. Yeah. But but I think that's what's particular about his angle, about August's writing, is he's particular in his cultural specificity. He is bold in his cultural assertion and he's truthful in his line-by-line line dialogue. And I think that's the magic. When did you come into contact with August Wilson for the first time? You said that the second that this is the play that made you want to be a playwright. How early on in your life yeah. were you aware of him? Or what did you read first or see first? I think I was about 23. And, uh, and my then wife brought me to the Tricycle Theatre, now the Kiln, to see Joe Turner. Oh, okay. And uh, and and I saw it, and I marvelled. Mm. Mm. I was so taken by it that I don't think I began to write for about another ten years, at least another eight years, because I was like, I don't think I can do that. Yeah, you read something truly brilliant, you go, how yeah. on earth can I ever compare? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So, what about the specific speech you've picked? What is it about that speech that stood out? First of all. To be fair, the first thing, anytime I read an August Wilson play and I see a page of dialogue, I get ready to be enchanted. 
I know he's going to take me somewhere deep. Lovely. And and it's the storytelling. You know, there's a, there's a link between the speech I will actually read about Barnum talking about blood on his hands. And and, and there's something about the ritual of blood mm. and, and of cleansing or cleaning that I found really fascinating about this speech. And that, and that there's a journey in it. He's taking a bend and, and then he's taking another bend. And there's something supernatural about it. Because he's telling, it's a dream. I was about to say, is it a dream? Is it some kind yeah, of a dream? It's yeah. a dream and, it's, and everything is bigger than life. But like all dreams or like most dreams, they're metaphors. Hmm. And, and that he spots his father in it, in this dream, and that his father speaks with him. Again, there is just the magic. There's a wonderful line in it where he says, and I, I could lay down and die a happy man, a man who done left his mark on life. And it's just like, not that this is the be all and end all of everything, but you know, this is the, the politic of self-determination. This is the politic of of thinkers like Marcus Garvey. It is the self-determination of Aristotle who speaks about, mm. you know, leaving the world incrementally better um, than when you woke. Yes. And so there is something about, about, about him talking about a dream and the dream, in this dream, he will get the clues that will lead him to find himself. It's simply magic to me. And, you know, you're right. We can all change the world in some small way. There's some there's some great play or film, and I'm now nervous as I say it, that it's just going to end up being Mean Girls or something awful like that. But I feel <laughs> like somewhere at the back of my memory, there's a lovely quote that's like, you know, you can't change the world, but you can change someone's world or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, yeah, the idea yeah, of to, yeah. to, to have a purpose or to change the world, it can be on a minute basis, but you need to feel like, oh, well, I did something. I made someone's someone else's life a little better or, you know, Amen. helped someone else Amen. on their way. Absolutely. So talking of changing the world, uh, let's move on to your other speech choice, which mm. we will be able to read. And it's from Randolph Edmonds's Nat Turner. And this is based on a real historical event, right? Yeah. Nat Turner um, was a, a revolutionary um, in the southern part of America who led a, a slave rebellion. Mm. And it did not succeed, but it, it, it was one of the foundation stones, I would say, that rocked the United States and the world that helped to bring um, about the emancipation of, of those who were enslaved. Mm. And this is um, written by a, a playwright and an academic called Randolph Edmonds. And I think this is in 1933, I believe, right. that, um, that he first wrote it. And this speech comes from, it, it's the closing speech of the play. And Nat, his slave rebellion, has been routed and he's on the run. And one of his lieutenants, trusted lieutenants, dies in front of him mm -hmm. um, up during their escape. And his trusted lieutenant's partner curses him. And she says in the speech before, how dare you march young men to their deaths with your foolish dream, your foolish dream that the white man will ever set us free, that we will ever be free. He's dead because of you. Mm. And it really rocks him. And yeah, and then the speech is, 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 is his response. She says, you are nothing but a beast. 
and and it's like kind of rocks his world. Mm. Do you know one of my favorite musicals is the musical Ragtime, mm. and there's a wonderful moment right at the end when Coleman he bought a brand new car. It's set at the turn of the century, of the, of the, into the twentieth century, and uh, he bought a brand new car, and some racists have have kind of um, smashed it up. And he tries everything that he can in, in order to get some justice. And when he does, when he can't get some justice, he then holds a library hostage. Mm. And there's a brilliant scene right at the end that the, the police are outside and he's in there by himself. And he says, Lord, tell me what to do next. Mm. Tell, tell me what to do. And this scene reminds me of that, of that, that thing when, righteous rage consumes you and then there's a moment when that rage leaves you and it can almost feel as if you were possessed and I don't mean that in a negative way it can no. just almost mean like if your whole world there was a there, you were you were a host for something else and I'm really fascinated by the energies that mix with our bodies the energies that lead us forward the spirit that allows us to get up in a day and say, I'm going to change the world. Mm. And, and I think this play kind of does that a little bit or explores it a little bit. You've touched on something that, that I actually wanted to bring up, which is, is it coincidence or is there any connection between the fact that the two speeches you've picked, they're both from characters that are deeply spiritual men? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that um, it's always hard, isn't it, in, in, in the world that we live in today to speak about the spirit. And if one speaks mm. about it in Eastern, you know, mystical terms, one can come over a, a bit like a hippie. Um, and, and if you speak about it in kind of Western judo, you know, Christianic terms, well, it could seem a little old fashioned. Um, but so I, I, I wish to do neither, but I, I, I do know that when there is a certain animation that we have when we are alive, that if ever you've seen a dead body, that um, that was alive merely seconds ago. It is, it is the lack of that animation, which makes it clear that this that there is something in us. There is a there is a propeller that some might call a spirit, mm. but there is an energy that that drives us, that animates us. But every day I look at the earth. And I think that is magic. I frequently say this. Right? I drop a seed into that and something grows. That's magic dust. That's beyond me. If I can't get to sleep at night, I've developed this habit of instead of counting sheep, I will begin to list things that I'm thankful for in the world. That's and lovely. I'll just keep going until I fall asleep. I love that. Um, and in regards to your comment about animation, mm. uh, it made me think... Very sadly, we lost a pet in my family this weekend. I'm sorry to hear that. Anyway, it was just, it was devastating. Yeah. But fascinatingly, we were advised to show her body to the other kitten, to her brother, who, who we also had. And like from a real distance, he spotted her and froze. Like properly sort of wow. one paw in the air, froze for about 60 seconds. And... You know, she wasn't lying awkwardly yeah. or anything, but yeah. you just thought you can tell, yeah. even from a distance, that there that there isn't life in that body anymore. Correct. The animating force has departed. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, that was horribly off topic and a little bit <laughs> I know. I, I love a bit of theology on an afternoon. It's wonderful. Both of these plays as well are American writers, I noticed. And do you think, mm. and obviously you spent a huge amount of time out in Baltimore, was it, where you were artistic Yes, director. I was. Yeah, yeah. Was your love, I guess I'm asking a chicken and egg thing here. Did you have a real love of American plays and American writing in general before Baltimore? Or was your time in America something that maybe opened you up to more American writing? I think both, um, if, I, if I can. You may. I think, for instance, here, a writer I don't speak about enough is a writer called Edgar White, Mm. Who, um, who 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 was black British or West Indian for want of a better term, and then wrote here for a long time and then went to America, and I think that in, invariably we the diet of plays that we were served in this country when I was younger invariably came from America, but I think it was writers like August Wilson and Edgar White that actually showed me that you could be political, and so I, I would say that that America on the whole, speaks about the diasporic African experience. Uh, you know, there are just more volume. Mm. And so I, I find myself not just drawn to it. I, it's difficult to ask, but of course, when I was in America, I was so, you know, I, I love the African-American voice. I love mm. its use of language and mm. I love its storytelling. So um, I, I would say that I went to America with a with a knowledge of the African-American narrative. I, and then I found myself deeper and, and deeper kind of ensconced in, in, in its modern manifestations. Mm. I definitely find myself drawn very much to American writing, actually. And I don't think I've yet put a finger on why, maybe, like you say, it's the volume of stuff. Because it's not that I dislike British writing at all, but, yeah, but I yeah. find often when I'm talking about things that have really fired me up, nine times out of ten, they're American plays. And I... Quite. I, I at one point wondered whether it was actually a sense of distance from the politics of it. I was almost like, yes. oh, actually, am I seeing this in a more escapist, for use of a better word, fun yeah. way? Because the politics of that American play don't feel as close to my existence. Whereas in an English one, maybe I feel a little more, less like I can just enjoy something and more like it is talking about something that might affect me. Yeah, I, I, I think for me, it, 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 is, it is volume. And, and it's something about um, the, uh, it, there's something, yeah, it is. It's mainly volume. It's just <laughs> that there was so much more. But when I come across that Black British play that really speaks to me, mm. it actually means even more to of me. Of course, Because yeah, it's very, very sense. particular. Yeah. To what extent do you find when you write that you mimic these people you respect? Well, it's a really good question for me because, of course, August is was my hero, um, but I knew that I was never a poet, <laughs> so I so therefore I, I I couldn't imitate it even if I tried. Mm. But what I tried to find was the thing that I think that I do well, mm. which is to observe human beings and then create dialogue that will feel authentic yes. to 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 that voice, to that spirit, to that soul. Also. For instance, I, I used to be very fond of David Mamet. Mm. Um, and, and what I would lift from Mamet, for instance, was the energy that went behind the dialogue. 100%. The energy that went that went into the sentence. Is there, are there too many words? Have you, is the rhythm right? You know, like I, I, I would do that in many respects. The thing that I would, I would take from George Bernard Shaw would be like, 
is this idea strong enough? Does、mm. the does the thing that you're trying to project is it, or the idea you're trying to discuss is it clean enough? Is it、uh, you know? And so I, I would say no. I I, I never fear、uh, mimicking. Maybe because I, I'm 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 too arrogant and or or, or insecure. <laughs> Oh, a combination of the both of them that I just go, I just got to be me, yo. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with the、um, what you said about Mamet. I remember being taken to see sexual perversities in Chicago when I was like fifteen or something, and just being blasted backwards by、yep. the whole thing. And I know he is a a troublesome man in、uh, many <laughs> ways. We'll put it that way. But yes, I find I do find them very thrilling to watch because of what you say, the energy of the of everything. energy. Absolutely. I also like because he wrote True or False, and、yes. it was the only, I would say, like practitioner book that I ever found really helpful because actually the side of him that makes him troublesome is、yeah. also the side that actually appealed to my sense of acting, which was a bit more, a bit more fuck it. Yeah, yeah. A yeah, bit yeah. more sort of like you're going to be who you're going to be, and you're going to do it、yeah. to the,、yeah. you know. And he always said that thing of never come off stage after a bad night, and if you've got a friend or family in, go. Oh, I'm sorry, it was a bad night because、yeah. they won't they have known know. any different. And、yep. to them, the difference between your bad night and your good night is minute,、yep. impossible for them to recognize. But you ruin their enjoyment of a performance by yep. telling them they got a lesser version. Now, I, I was very influenced by his Three Cuts of the Knife. I think that's、oh, what it's called. I don't、called. know I that. Think, oh, it's a brilliant book on on the writing process. There was a, a wonderful thing that that he speaks about, which is kind of Act Two fatigue. And it's when you're rolling that that boulder up the hill, you come out of the gates with Act One like a hare out of the gates, and then and then you get into Act Two and you start running out of juice. And by the time you've got to the end of Act Two, you're actually quite exhausted. Yeah. And so you kind of race through Act Three. So true. And it's so true. And and I recognise that in my own writing. And then I go. Okay, so that was just the rushed act three. But I think the three act structure is tricky. I mean, it's interesting. You actually said that really early on about August Wilson, didn't you? You said he was sort、yeah. of rebelling against that. But I think Shakespeare had it a bit more right that if you have five acts, three and two feels like a more sensible gap. Whereas I always think that in a three act play, that you end up with a first half of a play that's two. Epic acts long, yeah, and then like、yeah. nipping back in at the end for after a drink. Yep,、yeah. that's why you see so many plays, right? That kind of are like an hour fifteen first act,、yeah. and then you come back and it's like forty minutes in the second. <laughs> you go, you go, oh, oh、okay. for crying out loud! Yeah. yeah, you're like just put it all together, no interval, short play. Yeah, let get it, me in let the it bar. Run. Get <laughs> it run. Get me in a bar talking about it. Yeah, exactly. I always find intervals really tricky. I think、um, I remember seeing, you know, Jerusalem was the first thing I saw with two intervals,、mm. and I remember being really annoyed by it. I was almost like, <laughs> I don't want these weird wee breaks. Like, I just want、yeah. to keep going. But I think the、um, I, I I think box set television is really going to influence theatre a lot.、Yes. I think we'll see a lot less intervals and 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 longer plays because actually the audiences have been trained to sit with it. Yeah, for a bit longer. I think we're going to see some real developments in that regard. Yeah, I would rather not be. Sometimes that's a real tricky thing. It pulls an audience out at a moment when they're really in it. And I think the one time I really did appreciate it was、um, seeing the inheritance.、Mm, that's exactly what I was thinking. Which was、about. that just before your it time? Was bang on. It was the beginning of me. It was David's last one. Oh, and I remember with that actually because it was so. <laughs> Emotional in a small way. Actually, I appreciated the intervals slightly there because I was like, "Oh God, I really need a moment to 
not be feeling something for a minute. <laughs> yeah, but the whole night was like three and a half hours. And you kind of, I came out and I went, all right, great. I'm ready to go again now. Kwame, I was the same. I remember I saw the first part. I remember I'd just returned from America and I was incredibly jet lagged. And I remember sitting down going... God, this was not a good decision to sit and watch a three and a half hour play <laughs> on jet lag. And I remember coming out at 11 o'clock and going, if you could tell me I could go straight in for act two now, I'd do yep, it. Yeah, I'll do it. Part I'll two, I'd do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay, we've had some laughs, we've had some education, and now it is time to hear the speech. So this is the closing speech from Randolph Edmonds, Nat Turner. So j- just to put it in context... The woman who was the partner of his friend, his lieutenant, who just died, she's just said her last lines are, I'm going to tell the white folks who you are, who you really are. I'm going to tell them, I'm going to say he ain't nothing but a beast. Mm-hmm. That's what, a beast. And then she runs off. And then Nat says, a beast. She called me a beast. If I was a beast, who made me one? If, if if they buy and sell me, whip like dogs and feed me their leavings, how can I be none else but a beast? How can they blame me if I turns on them and I rends them? Yeah. Yes, he's dead. A few minutes ago, he was here in this world groaning in misery. Hawk is captured and there ain't no army. What, what am I going to do now, Lord? What am I going to do? What can I do? I know what I'll do. Um, I'll hide under that, that pile of fence rails till I can get myself another army. I done put my hands in the plow and I can't turn back now. Look at that moon coming back to light up the world. It's big and round and yellow. It done dripped out all of its blood. My hands is full of blood. Will they ever be clean? Was I wrong, Lord? Was I wrong to to fight for the for that the black man might be free? What am I going to do now? Show me a vision, Lord, like like you did when, when the spirits was fighting in the air. Talk to me, Holy Ghost, like you did when you told me to seek the kingdom of heaven. Did, did you say you was going to reveal the secrets of the planets? Speak to me and show me, Lord. What's that noise? Must be the soldiers looking in the woods for me. I can't let them catch me. I, I, I gotta get me an army and I gotta fight for some more freedom. I want freedom and I must have freedom for all the black slaves. Show me how to get it, Lord. Spirit of God, show me the way. Guide me. Lead me. Beat me. He runs off the stage. Curtain. Thank you. You totally get what you said earlier about the terror of 
missing the drive, wanting the drive that made you act in the first place? It's the fear that that suddenly, do I still have, are you still with me, Lord? Yeah. Are you the spirit that was driving me to do this? Is it still here? Yeah. Well, this has been insightful in all the best ways. Oh, thank you. Lucy, I, I'm a real fan of your energy. When you invited <laughs> oh. me on, even though all of our diaries are crazy, I just wanted to meet your energy. Oh, it's really Tommy. important as as theatre and as our countries open back up, that maybe some of the toxicity uh, and kind of infighting in our sector is replaced with real positive discussion and energy. And I just want to yeah. say, I think that you're one of the manifestations of that. So thank you. Thank you so much. Onwards and upwards, eh? Absolutely. This is the last episode of Series 1 of Hear Me Out. I want to say a massive thank you to everyone who has tuned in and supported the show. It's been an insane labour of love and has monopolised my life for the last six months, so thank you from the bottom of my heart. I promise you we'll be back for a second series, and I've got some incredible guests already lined up for you. Make sure you follow us on social media at Pod Hear Me Out to keep abreast of when we'll be coming back, and I'd love to hear your suggestions of who else to get in front of the mic. As ever, the beautiful music has been by Tristram Kay and the kick-ass artwork by Rebecca Bright. Two people I count myself immeasurably lucky to have as sidekicks in life. Right, that really is it. Lucy Eaton, exiting stage left. <laughs>